0: Jesus preaching unsettled people. Um, If you've ever read the Gospels, you'll maybe know that. If you had this sense that when Jesus spoke, it always had a calming influence on people, you probably haven't read carefully. Jesus preaching unsettled people. It sounded different from what they'd heard or been hearing from their uh, religious leaders, from the teachers of the law. And especially today, we're told, from what they'd heard from the Pharisees. The Pharisees was a a sect, a a faction within contemporary Judaism. Among other things, they believed that God had given oral teaching over and above what we would have recorded in the Bible, God's written word. As a result, they loved to add this oral teaching to the the written word, and they loved to challenge people to, to keep the whole of what they were presenting to them. When it came to the written word, they, they did all the work on the laws. They did the analysis. They broke the God's law down to 613 rules. Some of us don't like or struggle with the idea that there are 10 commandments. These guys found 613 rules, 248 commands, or thou shalt, and 365 prohibitions, 365 things that we shouldn't do. But here's the genius of the Pharisees. On top of the 613 rules, there were lots of areas where they they just thought the law wasn't quite clear enough or maybe quite tight enough. So they made some rules of their own. 1,500, 1,521 emendations, places where the law didn't seem quite tight enough. So, for example... To help us not to break the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, they refused to speak God's name at all. I don't know if you know this. They tried to go through life living for God, but, but not to, to use his name. To avoid sem- sexual temptation, um, if a Pharisee was out in public and saw a woman coming the other way along the street, he would drop his eyes. And make sure that he didn't even look at her to make sure that he didn't desecrate the sabbath uh, pharisees outlawed 39 particular activities that just might qualify as work work that you shouldn't do on the sabbath so this law with endless small print that's how i want you to think of the the righteousness of the pharisees this is what jesus is talking about verse 20 the righteousness Of the Pharisees. By the way, it's still alive and well today, so in in almost any branch of the church you'll find people who add to God's law, and they do that sometimes very well-intentioned because they really want to please God, sometimes less well-intentioned, they really want to impress other people. When Jesus started to teach it was clear that he was coming from an entirely different place. It was because he rejected this religiosity of the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that some people thought he was radical. Some people thought that he'd come to throw out God's law altogether. No, says Jesus when he comes to talk about the law and the prophets. He said, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what does he mean by fulfill at that point what what, what's he got in mind it could mean simply that he came to obey the law and that's certainly included jesus will have obeyed the law it could mean that jesus came to complete or finish the law and that's certainly true as well and we see that spelt out in other parts of the new testament but what he emphasizes here is, is something different in both of those what he emphasizes in the rest of this chapter is that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets by showing their true and intended meaning, what God had always intended for them. If we want to know what God's law means and what it's for, what its purpose is, then think about it. There's no better teacher than Jesus Christ. If we've been confused about the law, wouldn't it be great if God himself came and said, here's what the law is all about. Here's how I want you to think of the law. Here is how I want you to obey the law. That's what we have now in Matthew chapter 5. Let's notice quickly what Jesus has to say about the law in general. He says, far from coming to destroy the law, I'm here to tell you, that the law is here to stay. Look at verse 18. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's important to bear that in mind. Whenever we say that we're saved by grace and not by works of the law, it doesn't mean that God's law disappears or has no role to play. Look again at verse 19. Jesus warns us there about setting aside the law. He says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In, the, in this moment, it almost looks as if he's, he's affirming the righteousness of the Pharisees, but, but he's, not, he's not commending their legalism. He's simply saying that his followers should be fully faithful to the true meaning of the law as he's about to teach it. That Jesus doesn't want his followers to emulate the Pharisees, that that actually becomes crystal clear. If there's any doubt, verse 20, look at the bombshell he drops there. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, You'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. At which point we think, oh, nightmare. Jesus, surely that's an impossible standard. Moses' law was already beyond our reach. And then these Pharisees have come and they've raised the bar even higher. Have you come to, to raise the bar higher still? Are you meaner than Moses and harder than the Pharisees? No, says Jesus. Have something entirely different in mind. Your righteousness will be greater than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when you join with me in my understanding, my way of understanding and keeping the law. Whenever you stop trying to be legalistic rule keepers, hoping to impress God or other people, whenever you stop using the law as the minimum that you need to do to please God so that you can then go away and live life all on your own terms, your righteousness will be greater than that of the Pharisees. Whenever you see, begin to see life as a glorious opportunity to do good, all the good you can, to be salt rubbed into the grain of our society, making the room a better place for everyone you encounter, to be light for your town in which you live, to guide lost people home. Folks, don't don't let's forget that this this Sermon on the Mount isn't a series of unrelated things just put together by Matthew. It's It's a seamless piece of teaching. What did we learn last week about our purpose? We're to live as salt and light so that, verse 16, our neighbors will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus isn't playing with religious language here. He's inviting us to a way of life that's going to attract other people to God. Tell me this. Uptight rule keepers. Do you find them attractive? Nobody else does either. Self-righteous legalists have never drawn anybody to Jesus. But a people full of poetry and light, radiating the light of the the spirit of Jesus in them, the poetry of the gospel, that's a different matter altogether. People like that really are magnetic. We've thought for a moment there about the law in general. We're actually, we only read the next section, the one that's entitled murder, but we're going to deal with the whole rest of this chapter. Don't panic. I can see the clock. What we're going to do is we're going to treat these as Jesus gave them. I don't think these are six totally different ideas. I think these are a teacher doing what some teachers would choose to do in a moment like this. These are six worked examples of what Jesus means by a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Let's come to the first of our worked examples on murder. I want you to notice that Jesus uses a repetitive formula. We didn't see it because we didn't read the six back to back. If we had, we would have seen this form- formula. It's very, very, very clear. In each of the six cases, he begins by saying, you have heard it said. And then he refers to some part of the law that's been handed down to the people so in the first example he says you've heard that it was said to the people long ago do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment that's pretty straightforward Um, if you know your 10 commandments you'll know that you shall not kill is the sixth commandment and you may also know that an ancient israel a convicted murderer faced the death penalty you have heard that it was said but then jesus always offers a deeper interpretation of the law you've heard that it was said but i tell you you've heard that it was said to the people long ago do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment but i tell you anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment You don't need to physically murder a person to have broken God's law. Being angry with them and choosing to feed that anger, that's every bit as much of a sin in God's sight. For Jesus, it doesn't matter only what we do. It matters what kind of people we are. Let's let's slow down for a second. Why does Jesus put such a high Penalty on anger? Isn't it because showing anger and contempt for a person's already a kind of wishing them dead? Isn't it true that whenever we treat a person that way, we're wishing they, they were dead already? Sometimes, if you think about it for a moment, when we really let rip with our anger, We can hurt a person so much, destroy them so deeply that that actual murder would almost be a mercy. At least they wouldn't have to live in an ongoing way with this awful experience. Jesus is warning us to be careful how we treat other people loved by God. In verses 23 to 24, he gets practical and he gives the following advice. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you see what he's saying? Don't try to worship while you're harboring anger in your heart. Don't hide behind your religious observance. Get rid of your anger first. Only when you've made peace with your fellow human beings will will you be ready to come and meet with the living God who's made peace with you through Jesus Christ. Isn't that important for us to remember as we come to worship in a place like this? Do you see what Jesus is doing with this first worked example? He's taken the commandment, thou shalt not kill, and he's shown us what God really means by it. Yes, it does mean literally that we shouldn't take anyone's life, but the command means so much more. We don't use anger and contempt to make life a misery, a living death for other people. Disciples of the kingdom don't kill, says Jesus either with their hands or in their hearts. We're coming now to a second worked example, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You'll need to scan as I teach through these because we didn't get a chance to read them. And he quotes there one of the Ten Commandments. God's word clearly, clearly forbids adultery. Sleeping with anyone other than the person that you're married to. But Jesus, uh, I've said he uses a formula, so he uses the formula here. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the sin of adultery, like all other sin, begins in the heart. It has its roots in our inner thoughts. So even if we don't get involved in the physical act Wanting or imagining a sexual relationship with somebody other than our spouse is already to commit adultery in the heart. Just as we can murder people in our thoughts, so we can commit adultery there. Jesus warns us, verse 29, how serious this is. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole of your body to be thrown into hell if your right hand causes you to stumble cut it off and throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell jesus does not want you to gouge out your eye or cut off your arm you know that don't you I hope so. I'm absolutely convinced of it. That's not what he wants. How can I be so sure? Well, because if we did gouge out our eyes and cut off all our limbs, the irony is that with with all of that maiming of our body, our hearts could still be full of all the bad stuff. It wouldn't even begin to deal with it. So Jesus is just using hyperbole, dramatic language to talk to us about this seriousness of adultery. He's saying, do everything you can to guard your heart. He's saying that we need to have a strong and clear defense against lustful thoughts. To avoid lustful thoughts in our times, the the variety of stimulus available to us is like the world has never known before. I'm talking about pornography. If I talked to a previous generation, pornography existed but was hard to access. I'm talking now to a generation where it's almost unavoidable. Pornography is ruining lives the world over. We've come to a point, and and I'm surprised, I, I wasn't sure we'd reach this stage, but we have, We've reached a stage that people who have no Christian morality have begun to talk about how damaging pornography is. A couple of months ago, Billie Eilish spoke of her addiction to watching pornography from the age of 11. How it gave her nightmares. How it messed her up when she started dating. Speaking on the hard, stern show, she said this is a woman who doesn't as far as i know have any reason to to have a a a recognizable christian morality here's what she says i think porn's a disgrace i think it destroyed my brain i feel incredibly devastated that i was exposed to so much porn she may not yet be a disciple of jesus christ but already she understands Jesus' strong warning against feeding unhealthy and lustful thoughts that will destroy our hearts. Do you see what Jesus has done with this second worked example? He, he reminds us that keeping right outwardly, uh, by avoiding the physical act of adultery, it, it doesn't, doesn't prevent her hearts being full of filth. Disciples of the kingdom. Avoid adultery of the heart as well as the physical act. Before we look at the third of these worked examples, let me point out Jesus isn't trying. These are worked examples for the point that he's making higher up in the text. It's not a chance to say everything that there is to be said about murder or adultery or now in this third one, divorce. Divorce. There are other occasions in the Gospels and in the Bibles where more and other things are said about divorce. This paragraph serves as another worked example about how the righteousness of the kingdom surpasses that of the Pharisees. How does he do it? Look at verse 31. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So uh, you, you, you may not know much about this, The law of Israel allowed for divorce so long as the woman was given a proper certificate. That was a way of ensuring that it was legally clear that she'd been divorced and was allowed to to marry. But verse 32, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Now, we've got to think about what he's saying here. In the economic realities of that day, you couldn't survive as a single woman. It wasn't an option. The only way would have been through adultery, or sorry, through uh, uh, through prostitution. So, whenever a husband puts aside his wife, he's forcing her, in effect, into a second marriage prostitution or another marriage which could have felt to her like a form of adultery what jesus is dealing with in this passage is actually only quite a small thing if we want to keep it on subject he's challenging the moral smugness read it in the text of the men who've gotten rid of their wives but think they're okay because they have the right paperwork. Paperwork or no paperwork, Jesus tells us that it's not okay to treat lightly the very marriage commitment that God takes seriously. Friends, we can't take time this morning because it's not our purpose to say everything that could be said about divorce. I do want to say this. I'm aware of the deep hurt That divorce brings, that it brings to any family that's impacted by it, that it's brought into this church family. Let me remind you that nothing that we do or that's done to us puts us beyond the reach of God's grace. His arms of love are long. Let's hear too these words of Jesus. And recommit ourselves to faithfulness in our marriages. Disciples of the kingdom don't look for ways out of their commitments, they strive to be faithful as their heavenly Father is faithful. In verse 33, The subject is that of keeping promises or oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. That's not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's very much in keeping with the spirit of God's law in general. If you make a promise or swear to do something, your promise is binding. Jesus says something remarkable on the subject He says, but I tell you, don't swear at all. Simply let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. A person's word, whether it's yes or no, should be enough. Just think about this, folks. Real life bears this out. Whenever our word is absolutely reliable, then we don't need to make long and elaborate promises. You'll know what I'm talking about. The more a person says, I, I promise, I swear, I swear on this, that, or the other. If you're a wise person, you're saying to yourself, hmm, methinks you protest too much. When we're disciples of the kingdom of God, We learn to speak the truth. And anybody who keeps company with us on a regular basis knows that our yes is our yes and our no is our no. And it's on that basis, not of the oaths that we make, that they trust us. In verse 38, Jesus picks up on more teaching from the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's a very well-known saying, but it's not, I, I don't think, actually very well understood. In the context of the Jewish law, it had a particular function. It acts to limit the revenge that you take on somebody who's harmed you. So if somebody knocks out one of your teeth, you're allowed to go and knock out one of their teeth. Now that's probably quite hard to do, Probably quite hard to knock out exactly the right number of teeth, but but the law allowed it. Um, If somebody blackened one of your eyes, you'd be allowed to go and blacken their eyes. But what you couldn't do is if somebody knocked out your tooth or blackened your eye, you couldn't go and kill them. The punishment or the revenge had to fit the crime. So it's a way of limiting the damage we would do to a person who's hurt us. We'd say, okay, an eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. That's how society worked. But Jesus doesn't work by society's standards. You've heard that it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Whenever you're hurt or taken advantage of, Don't let your first thought be, how can I take revenge? How much revenge am I entitled to? Leave that to God. That's the teaching of Scripture on revenge. Leave that to God. He'll make sure that that person gets what they deserve. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you're free And this is what we've got to hear from all of what we're thinking about this morning. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we're free to live from the low standards of the people around us. You're free to live by the standards of the king. Look at verse 43 for one last worked example. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, Jesus wasn't the first to tell us to love our neighbor. That's an Old Testament command. And and although hate your enemy wasn't taught anywhere in the Old Testament, over the years, it had become an unwritten rule in Israel, just as it has in Northern Ireland. Again, what Jesus teaches here is revolutionary. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray. Pray. For those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven do you see what he says here about this he's starting to to bring these six worked examples to a conclusion a couple of things he says here will give you a way of of holding them all together he says that loving our enemies or indeed acting in any of the ways he's talked in these previous five worked examples Whenever we live this way, we show the family likeness. We show that we're like our Father. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus' point's very simple. God is gracious even to people who reject Him. If He wasn't, the flood of Noah's time would happen every day. He's gracious even to people who reject him. When we love our enemies, we're imitating our gracious Father God. Jesus um, is a wise teacher, so sometimes what he says just has that ring of truth and wisdom and honesty. Look at what he says. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that? Folks, being nice to your friends isn't anything. Paramilitaries in the height of the troubles were probably very loyal to each other at points along the way. That's not, there's nothing there. That's nothing. It's when we can reach beyond our own community to love another or a person who's classified as our enemy, then we start to have that godly uh, that godly light in us we're finished here for this morning in verse 48 jesus summarizes everything that he said about god's law he tells his disciples be perfect then as your father in heaven is perfect this is interesting he's been telling us to take our eyes off the rules and to look instead inside our hearts. And he frames that or summarizes that as a kind of perfection. You see, it turns out that Jesus isn't interested in creating a community of rule keepers and do-gooders, people who are focused only on doing the right thing. In fact, he's less interested in what you're going to do than he is in the kind of person you're going to be. Those worked examples were all about you've been told what you should do, 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 do. Jesus finishes the debate by saying, no, no, be. He's talking about what he wants us to be. To be perfect like our father In heaven you see the truth is if I if I do that if I hand myself over to Jesus Christ if I say Jesus pour your spirit into me transform me more and more into your likeness make me more and more like the father I'll be keeping every rule that ever there was and much more besides I won't need to worry about keeping rules. That'll all take care of itself. Folks, this is what God intended all along. We said at the outset that Jesus unsettled people with his teaching. Maybe I've unsettled you here this morning as I've tried to reteach it. I hope not. This is what God wanted all along. Through Ezekiel, the prophet, He talked of a time when I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It'll be my spirit inside you. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God told his people, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Wow. No longer uptight rule keepers no longer self-righteous legalists people who are good on the inside and it simply pours out because the very goodness of god is growing in us folks that's what jesus christ is talking about when he talks about a righteousness that surpasses that of the pharisees It's the righteousness that he wants to give to you and to me. Shall we ask him for it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for helping us to see more clearly what your designs for us are Uh, lord your your heart for us isn't that we're people who print out lists of rules and try to tick them off and keep them lord you don't want us to earn merit with you by keeping rules or to try and impress each other by our our legalisms lord you have something much more for us you want to give us the very presence of your spirit in our hearts You want our lives to be changed as the fruit of your spirit grows and makes us into people who naturally love God, love our neighbor as ourselves, and bless others. Lord, as we hear all this, we long for more more of your presence in us, more of your transforming power. Lord, we pray today that you'd give us that righteousness, one for us on the cross, that righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Give it to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name.